Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. I just want to tell you guys that 44 years ago today, at around 4.15, I biked from my school at 93rd and Central Park West to 44th and Broadway, chained my bike to a uh, pole, and uh, went in for the second or third show of a movie called Star Wars, the first day that it opened. And yes, I was there. Only hours into its first showing, I was present on the May the 4th Be With You Day. And I was telling my son uh, today as I was walking to the bus stop that what I mostly remember about that is the moment when the Millennium Falcon makes the jump into hyperspace. And if you remember the visual, it's that there's a there's a sort of a, a series of stars out the window, and then you know Han Solo pushes the button or whatever, and then the stars elongate into lines, and then there's a kind of boom, and the ship disappears, you know, charges ahead and disappears. And I think it was the first time in my life that I heard an audience, a movie audience, spontaneously erupt into applause. And it was at that moment, I think, that it became, it, it was clear that, that, that the movie going experience and movies had changed forever in like one fell swoop. There had been little bits of it over the course of the last four or five, previous four or five years. The Godfather came out, The Exorcist came out, Jaws came out. But that was the moment that said movies are now playing a different role in the popular culture that it was. And it's an interesting thing to reflect on now that it, there's very uh, strong reason to believe that movies are now moving off to the side of popular culture uh, because uh, the various things are, are, are destroying the movie going experience. Anyway, that is my story for May 4th. I am John Podhortz, the editor of commentary. I think I said already, if I didn't, I am. And with me as always, senior editor, uh, sorry, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. You were like, I don't know what you were, seven? I was seven. I had Star Wars bedsheets as a kid, though. I was a hardcore Star Wars fan. So, of course, I hate the the, the episodes one through three. I like four, five, yeah. and six. And I have right. mixed opinions yeah. on the final three. But yes, I was a big yeah. Star Wars kid. And Abe, you were six or eight? What were you? Yeah, I think I'm I'm, a little, I'm slightly older than Christine, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, so. I remember yeah. I went to the I didn't go the first day, but I went, you know, um, when it was when the movie was released, and uh, I loved it and had no idea what was happening at the same time. Right. <laughs> and Noah, you were not born yet. And not not for the first one, no. Or the but second. But you were one. born. You were born by by the time the Empire Strikes Back came out. But you didn't go to the Empire Strikes Back because you were a baby. So. No. Wait, what year I've was the first one? 77. And by the way, so Empire Strikes Back was yeah. 79, so I'm not I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't think. I think the third one I was alive for. But Okay, um, yeah, that was I've been seen so them, and um yeah. Yeah, that that's all bad. I have to say on the subject. Yeah, Return of the Jedi is bad, and then of course everything that after it was bad. And there were mm. like nine movies after it and they were no. bad. The prequels were bad bad. and the new ones were bad. Let's face it, if (laughs) it weren't for the first two, there those others wouldn't exist and everybody would have come out of them going, Yeah, that that was was all right. It was okay, I guess. I don't know. I mean, that was a good scene or something like that. I really enjoyed that part. But the Star Trek is superior. Baseball is boring. I'm this side of a communist. You are. I'm sorry. No, it is not. It is not a communist to say that the Star Wars movies after The Empire Strikes Back were bad. That is actually cultural conservatism at its finest. Not only because it is true, 
but also because it suggests that there was something in the past that was better than every effort to, you know, uh, capitalize on it uh, in the times following without any real conviction or purpose. All right. Enough with the Star Wars talk. Um, though it is interesting because uh, yesterday the governors of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, led, of course, by Mario Cuomo, announced the complete uh, dropping of all okay, – it's complicated. It's a dropping of all capacity restrictions in their states, obviously contiguous states, uh, all contiguous except for Pennsylvania, which was not uh, a party to this um, – uh, by May 19th. So all capacity restrictions, movies, theaters, concerts, restaurants, whatever, capacity restrictions are dropped, although they are to follow CDC guidelines, which strikingly remain, even though schools have now been told that kids can sit three feet from one another. Restaurants, you are still supposed to be six feet apart. Guess why? Because it's all nonsense. Anyway, so... Six feet apart and with 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 plexiglass barriers, because I don't know if you know this, but um, microbes ha- are uniquely blocked by plexiglass and they can't float above the plexiglass. I mean, it's an amazing thing how microbes, you know, if we just walked around in plexiglass boxes, no one would ever get sick from anything. My- microbes and plexiglass, it's like, a, it's like you know, garlic and vampires. It's an amazing thing. Uh, so it's interesting because the restrictions are being lifted except for the ones that you're supposed to follow from the CDC. What's interesting about that, of course, is that I think that there are indications that the CDC, despite its weird behavior, will likely start, ra- will, will likely follow in train. I don't know what's not going to be by the, probably by the, 19th of May, but we'll, we'll start easing on its rules <clears throat> at some point because it, it has to. It's already started with vaccinated people and all of that. And at some point, it will start relaxing its, its restrictions. And so I wonder whether the thing we said back in March of 2021 or April of 2020, excuse me, uh, you know, 14 months ago or something was that there would be a point at which, because this was no longer sustainable, we would deem... The, we would deem the the uh, the pandemic over and that we won. And we know yesterday there was the story in the New York Times about how we're never going to get to herd immunity based on what herd, in some classical definition of herd immunity. And if that's the case, I just wonder, do we think this is an element of, let's say, a federalized state-by-state way in which the pandemic is going to be deemed over? I mean, we could say that basically Texas and Florida and other places have effectively done that without doing it, right? Saying, okay, we're not going to impose any mandates. Private businesses and individuals, whatever, can do what they want. But we are not involving ourselves at state at the state level in, in how you are to govern yourself in the middle of a pandemic. So that kind of plays into that? I don't know. Two single-sentence observations. The first is that now blue states are following a red state lead not the White House's lead. Joe Biden is an afterthought. And the CDC and every agency, federal agency, is an afterthought for state-level mitigation efforts at this point. The second is that it's just more confirmation that our public health guidelines are not dictated by public health metrics. They're dictated by elite opinion and an effort to stay ahead of the, of the curve, or at least not too far behind the curve, enough to remain relevant. 
Okay, so um, I was looking at the at the data tracker, right? Uh, today uh, at the CDC, and we have the vaccination numbers. So on the one hand, the vaccination numbers day by day remain very worrisome because they are still dropping. Like yesterday, 1.8 million vaccines were administered. Um, remember, like as little as three weeks ago, 4 million a day were being administered. So we don't know to what extent this is, uh, you know, people... Uh, this slowdown would have been natural. Is it the Johnson and Johnson uh, uh, pause that has caused more vaccine hesitancy and all of that? But obviously, the numbers of people getting vaccinated are slowing down, and so that's worrisome. However, here's here are the numbers. Okay, percentage of the total population that has at least one dose—that's the total population. Remember, people under sixteen as yet. And that 75 million people are not eligible to be vaccinated. That's 44.4% have at least one dose. 32% are fully vaccinated. So presuming that those people show up to be vaccinated, in one to three weeks, that number, the number of fully vaccinated will be up to 44%. And the number of the total population that is vaccinated will rise above 50 uh, of the population 18 years of age and older, 56.3% have had at least one dose, 40.6% fully vaccinated. And of the population 65 and older, which is, of course, the one that is most at risk, 82% have at least one dose, almost 70% fully vaccinated. So we keep talking about herd immunity, herd immunity, herd immunity. But obviously, the metric is not going to be some mystical question of whether or not herd immunity is achieved. It's going to be following hospitalizations, case rates, and deaths. And in the case rate thing, we are now down to about 40,000 cases a day, whereas three weeks ago during the Michigan surge or whatever it was, we were at 70,000 cases a day. So that's a plunge of, you know, what is that in percentage terms? I mean, it's not quite half, but it's pretty close. Uh, what? Uh, okay. What? What? Abe, hey, you're our numbers guy. What does this mean to you? Um, I think we have hit that phase where the the numbers uh, drop off dramatically. Uh, whether we can call this uh, technically herd immunity or not. Um, I, I don't know. I suspect not. But this this is a pattern that we observed happening before it did here in Israel and in the UK when there was a, there seemed to be a kind of threshold around 40 percent or so of adults getting um, shots that made the numbers drop significantly. The new the new infection numbers and deaths drop significantly and allowed people to begin to return to some sort of normal life. That That is what's happening here. I said 40,000 cases. I'm sorry. It's 49,661 cases. That is still getting under that 50,000 mark is a very big deal uh, because it, uh, we are now at 4% four per, uh, of the cases of the, of the tests. Yesterday came back positive. That is also a very low number. And remember, 
people are getting tested because they think they have the virus or they might have the virus in a lot of cases. Some of them are like tests because they have to get on planes or do whatever it is that they have to do. To contextualize it, 50,000 cases a day is roughly a bad flu season. Right. So... Um, I just want to add, though, I think, I think yeah. you know, this is very healthy in terms of these decisions because with, with so long as there was this idea of a magical breakthrough herd immunity number out there, it facilitated um, indefinitely this idea that a return to normal was just beyond the horizon. And so long as that return to normal was just beyond the horizon, we could keep extending all these restrictions and all these lifestyle changes and to just hold out just a little longer until we're until we're in the clear. Um, and I think understanding in the clear in a different sense is good because it it, it pushes us out of this and, and, you know, back into some sort of normal daily rhythm. Remember, Biden said in his speech last week, we can't let our guard down. And simple fact of the matter is we have to let our guard down. I mean, first of all, when Andrew Cuomo, again, in deep political trouble, so he needs to change the subject or do whatever he can to get ahead of news and all that, when he decides to abandon the, I'm going to sit around and pick numbers out of the out of the air on how many people can go into a restaurant and says, enough of this already. We're lifting restrictions. Everybody do what you think is best as long as it follows CDC guidelines. That represents a very significant mood shift, political mood shift in the United States. Uh, maybe the most significant mood shift that we have seen thus far. Cause I'll give you an example. Like there were no deaths in Los Angeles County from COVID on Monday. There were no deaths in Los Angeles County. Remember that Los Angeles County was in some crisis state maybe six weeks ago where they were locking down again and like everyone was told they had to stay in their homes and all of that. So apparently whatever was there is gone, but I don't hear Gavin Newsom opening the state up. So here, this is where I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on the idea that, that, you know, everybody's just ignoring the, the Biden administration. I think that's true, but I, there's still a really hard, heavy hammer that they're using, and that is the CDC guidance. The CDC guidance is preventing a lot of institutions or allowing giving cover to special interest groups that don't want to go back to normal. And obviously, I'm thinking here of the schools and the teachers unions, but this is much bigger than that. I mean, you have local ordinances. If they say leave it up to private individuals, private institutions, that's fine. But if they choose to follow the really restrictive CDC guidance, they're not going to be open. If you look at you know public uh, facilities and you look at local and state governments that continue to very closely follow these restrictions that are now already and have been for some time outdated, those institutions aren't open either. So I feel like there's a there there's definitely going to be a hodgepodge in the same way that there was at the beginning of the pandemic. We're going to see this at the trailing end of it where you have some extremely restrictive areas of the country, which are still on a kind of lockdown mentality, despite case numbers dropping. And and this is the point at which I think citizens really need to speak up, push back at their local officials and demand that re- demand that they remember that the CDC is only offering guidance, not law. This is not the law. This is guidance. And they can choose to um, not take that guidance given their local situation. But you said it twice, choose, choice and choose. The operative word there is choice and choose. They're mm-hmm. determining that they are best served 
by adhering to absurdly strict guidelines that even health experts are very freely now critical of because they're excessive. The Biden administration went to war with the state of Michigan very publicly lobbied when, when private nudging wasn't doing the, wasn't doing the trick. CDC said that Michigan has to shut down or things are going to get absolutely terrible over there. The hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. We're now at a 14 day change of case rates in Michigan is down 50% due to what governor Gretchen Whitmer said was their pretty strict restrictions already on their, their, uh, their populace. And the notion that more strict restrictions weren't going to do anything more than what was already going on. People closer to the ground can buck this administration when they want to have and demonstrated that it's actually a winning course of action. The the institutions that don't do that have no interest in public health. Public health isn't their primary metric that they're using now to to maintain these restrictions. This is for the teachers unions, for example. It's just a prolonged labor dispute. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. You know, there's a, there's a, I'm going to go back to our favorite, uh, you know, our favorite (laughs) historical philosophical analogy of Plato's cave. We were talking about this last week uh, amongst ourselves, or maybe Christine and I were talking about it because of a, because of a piece that she, she might be writing. And, you know, I, I went and I looked, you know, we keep talking about the teachers unions and their whip hand on school reopenings and what's going on and how the teachers unions, all these uh, news stories about how the teachers unions got involved in writing the CDC guidance on reopening schools, not in the sort of classic way where people, you know, there's a comment period and people who have a particular interest in something can comment, but we're actually bypassing as a political matter and providing language and things like that about this. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? They're a ba- they're a base of the Republican Party and or the Democratic Party, and so they they play a role. And then I sort of like I, I went and I sort of checked numbers. Okay, so the so the um, the National Education Association, the largest of the national teachers unions, has 2.2 million members. And the second, the American Federation of Teachers, has 1.7 million members. So put it together, it's about 4 million unionized teachers in the United States. The Republican Party base, when issues, when they are given, when it is said that they have the whip hand on policies like Mexico City, the abortion rules and all of this... The number of people who call themselves pro-life in the United States stands with various changes, or however you want to ask the question, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the adult population, okay? That's like 80 million people. Gun owners in the United States also considered as having ex- excessive amounts of control over the, right? There are more than 100 million gun owners in the United States, the teachers unions represent 4 million people. Biden, as Noah keeps commenting on in general, says, I'm a union guy. I want union jobs. I want to do things for unions, right? Unions represent, not private sector unions represent less than 10% of the American workforce. There is something weird going on here. It is, these are, these are, minorities of minorities who are playing an outsized role in the formulation and construction of policies and policy decisions that conventional political understanding would say they do not deserve. And I don't quite get what's going on here. 
does anybody have, can anybody help me with this? Cause it's like, at some point it's like, there's 75 million, there's, there are like 150 million parents with school age children and there are 4 million teachers and the parents have no power and the te- and they don't have no power. That's a ridiculous thing to say, but, and so a lot of them are with the teachers, but not all of them. And the teachers have had this unbelievable amount of authority over these questions and it doesn't jive with their actual numbers and their actual practical political effect outside of the cities and some of the states in which they end up playing outsized roles in electing people and like getting, you know, being part of the work, the the free workforce that political parties get to help them bring out the vote and all that. Well, I, I'll take a stab at that. Maybe that is not just necessarily, I mean, there is obviously the financial <clears throat> clout that uh, the unions and organized labor represents as a donor class. But, you know, the smallness of a minority doesn't necessarily mean that the interests of that minority group are uh, not of profound uh, interest to a, a broader base of voters because it becomes a field on which you can wage a broader culture war. And I'm thinking very specifically about transgenderism and transgender rights. I mean, we're talking about the smallest, most infinitesimal minority here, a barely measurable contingent of the American political landscape. But the people who are invested in their interests as a minority group aren't small at all. It's 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 a broad array of both people on the left and the right who are arguing over an issue that affects a barely measurable contingent of the American population, but it's the issue that matters. Despite the 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 actual number of teachers union members, I think it's more important, uh, as Noah suggests, to, to follow the money here because for the, for since the '90s, I believe the teachers unions have been among the top ten donors to to Democrats in national campaigns, presidential, Senate, you know, whatnot. So they are extremely powerful as a group financially. I mean, the which is of course ironic because they also love to lobby as the. Uh, uh, National Education Association recently did about, you know, uh, taxing the wealthy. They take in uh, almost $400 million a year, I think is what they, but uh, was their was their budget last year. Um, that's all tax-free because, you know, that they're not taxed on that. So they're very powerful financially in the sense of putting money, not just at, at, at the federal level, and, and they were huge backers of Biden's campaign, but at the local level, they are very focused on electing the officials with whom they will then negotiate contracts for their teachers, right? So the local versions of these unions put a lot of money at the small campaign level, and they can easily outspend someone who's not as pro-union. That's a very granular focus that would uh, very interest political consultants and inside Washington, and I can see that. But I can't see that animating the average Democratic voter. What I can see animating the average Democratic voter is protections for workers, um, the notion that you know, workers are being abused in a labor sure. market that doesn't care for them and a broader sense of social responsibility animates their their defensive unions. That's that's the philosophy. Well, and that was actually a lot of people, I think, embraced that. The, the teachers unions were very effective at having that messaging at the beginning of the pandemic. And look, I'm, I'm not pro-union, but I, I was like, yeah, we, let's make sure that the schools are a safe place for kids to return to school and for the teachers. 
But, you know, a year and some uh, months later, that's no longer, they're still making that argument. And the ev- the scientific evidence is in direct opposition to what they're saying their workers need. And that's actually where a lot of Democratic voters are going, wait a minute, I can't get back to my job because my kids don't have a reliable place to go get educated every day. And I'm I'm basically, you know, we, we saw in the New York Times yesterday, this whole story about how women in particular have not returned to work because they can't, because the schools have been closed in a lot of these places. So that's where I think the shift the argument I was on board with at the beginning of the pandemic is no longer holding holding right. water to a lot of people. But I, I, right. you know, in terms of <clears throat> the sheer numbers, this, the the size of these minorities that have this outsized influence on us, um, I think if you look at the case of uh, both the teachers unions and the trans rights, um, the amplification effect in both cases uh, of media um, is enormous. And if you think of media, the people in media. As another example of a tiny minority um, uh, of the country who uh, sort of leads us around by the nose and tells us what to care about and then how to care about it, um, along with the, 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 the Twitter activists, as we've been saying throughout, who, who, who with every new study seem to represent a, a, a smaller and smaller percentage of the population. It is an interesting, I think, dynamic overall in American politics that um, we get sort of twisted around these very small groups thinking they have much more power than they do. Right. But, you know, we aren't the political professionals whose job it is to get elected, to stay elected, to build their majorities or to interfere with the majoritarian building of the other party and that sort of thing. Those people need to have very clear-eyed and unsentimental and not numbers-based understandings of things that are going on and granular as 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 Noah would say in order to make the kinds of dispassionate decisions that help them with their ultimate goal and that's where you have to start wondering whether the echo chamber that Abe is talking about is increasingly interfering with the ability of those people to make the kinds of decisions that they need to make, particularly on the Democratic side, in part because there's no media pushback, in part because uh, the voices uh, that they don't want to hear are are rendered somewhat mute or at least kind of like have the volume turned way down. And so uh, they don't understand. I mean, Noah wrote a post the other day about how they're not going to see the 2022 wave coming uh, if there is a 2022 Republican wave because the, um, how, how would you call it? Like, because their instinct, because their ability to feel the things that are indicating trouble for them, uh, uh, some of the nerve endings seem to have been detached. Well, the media environment is rewards a a sentiment on the left that suggests that any objection to their political program, particularly its excesses, that post was about critical race theory in schools. You could read the same thing about excessive COVID uh, precautions that are over and above what the CDC recommends that they treat people who are skeptical of those sort of responses as anathema, as hidebound and sort of uh, dismissible on their face, which is what's going to create that impression. Um, one of the things that that post, which is funny, 
This is about basically the results. We were talking about this yesterday, the South Park, South Lake, rather, Texas election results. And it was dismissed in that NBC News piece as, you know, well, this is a conservative county. And, you know, most of the population is white. It's 74% white. The country is 74% white. Yeah. The country and, is mostly conservative. And that district, and that district voted 48% for Biden. And it voted 48% <laughs> for Beto O'Rourke in 2018. That was supposed to be fertile field for Democrats in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And the fact that it went 70-30 against it, that's very significant. That's a place that Biden almost won. I mean, he you know, he came as close as you're going to get in Texas at this present moment, and that is the whip sign terror moment. Yeah, they can't they cannot frame that that issue, the issue set that was before voters creating a database of microaggressions, creating permanent paid positions for diversity consultants, policing racism outside the school. They can't they can't see that as anything other than pro-diversity measures. Quote pro-diversity measures. Right. Blinding themselves to the issue set and and blinding themselves to the to the uh, reaction to it, right, guys. I've been telling, I've been asking this question about incognito mode for a while, right? Incognito mode. It's on your Chrome browser. You use it, and you think therefore what you're doing can't be seen, but it can be seen. In fact, it's a Google thing, and so Google tracks your movements online and makes all of its money by selling your data and where you go and what you do to advertisers and Google itself in a class action lawsuit said uh, this, these very words incognito does not mean invisible. Okay, great. So basically they're lying to you about what the incognito browser is for. And you got to figure out some other way to get yourself invisible online. And that other way is express VPN because it takes your IP address which is what data harvesters use to uniquely identify you in your location. And it reroutes your connection through an encrypted server and masks that IP address. You get a random one shared by many other ExpressVPN customers, which makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. And it's super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you got to do is tap one button for instant protection from ExpressVPN. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN and visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary. Now let's talk about the racial makeup of the country. Um, uh, Nate Cohn of the New York Times, uh, who is one of the Nates, right? Nate Silver, Nate Cohn. Um, is one of the sort of uh, election data analysts, the founder of The Needle, uh, has been writing really uh, very interesting and uh, politically heterodox stuff on these matters for uh, almost a decade now, has a piece today in the New York Times that should be very alarming to Democrats. So it won't be because it's very hard for them to hear these things. Again, with that dispassionate ear, he says, if you look at census data and you look at election results, here's what you learn. What you learn is A, the the census data are out and the uh, white population has shrunk in the United States. It's gone from 73% to 71%. The black population in the United States, static. Growing minority populations in the United States, Asian, Hispanic, and multiracial, which either means 
that people who are claiming to have been black or Hispanic or Asian now say that they are multiracial or that whites or people who said they were white are claiming now that they are multiracial or Hispanics who called themselves Hispanic 10 years ago might now be calling themselves white one way or the other. The political narrative that we have been fed and the Democrats have been leaning into for a decade now, that we are moving inexorably to a majority-minority country, is belied by the survey data that's not even a survey data. I don't know. It's 70% of the country, uh, the households in the country are spoken to, are you know, d- uh, voluntarily submit the information on their racial and demographic makeup to the Census Bureau, and the other 30% are gotten through a variety of other means. This is not a poll. This is something else. This is a head-to-head count, or as close to a head-to-head count as we can possibly get. And it is unassailable. Like, if it's wrong, it's wrong on the margins. It's wrong by a quarter of a percent either way. That can be very big in terms of apportionments and stuff like that. But it's not big in terms of an understanding of the country's makeup. And the idea that by 2040 we're going to be majority-minority has now been conclusively disproven. We are not going to be majority-minority by 2040. So you can put, just put that out of your head And now the question is, what does that mean politically? Because Democrats have come to believe that because this is inexorably happening, if they can just gin up their numbers in in minority communities, they can challenge and overcome the Republican advantage with whites. Now, two problems with that. Number one, the black population is static. We're at the same, it has not grown as a percentage of the whole country over the last 10 years. White population dropped by two. Uh, Asians, Hispanics, and multiracial have gone up a bit, and and African Americans are static. So if you gin up the vote in, in African American communities, that can be pretty great for you. That is not how Biden won in 2020. As he points out, Biden won in 2020 by getting more of the white vote than Hillary Clinton got in 16, and that Barack Obama got in 2012. Uh, There's another issue here with this, which is that uh, among the minority groups that you just described, where there has been growth, um, are Hispanics and Asians. Um, We now know that the expert understanding of how Hispanics vote is very flawed and all over the place and doesn't map onto reality. And... um, the uh, uh, Asians, as we've you know begun to see and talk about, um, that vote may be more up for grabs than uh, we had previously thought. Right, exactly. So in in all in those cases, the classic understanding is that they go about sixty five thirty five Democrat to Republican, but it is not static. The Hispanic vote has been moving Republican, despite. Donald Trump's rhetoric, which I think everybody thought in 2015 was going to kill him, and obviously we saw these amazing results in 2020 in the Rio Grande Valley counties uh, and in South Florida. Again, these are wildly different Hispanics, right? Cubans and Mexicans are not the same types of people, um, but that they were more. But that they 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 shifted, and some of these counties are tiny. It's just a question of whether they're they they're suggestive of changes, and they, I think everybody would have to say that they were. Um, so you have this very weird phenomenon, which is that 
Biden won by appealing to white people who couldn't stand Trump anymore. And his political impulse as president uh, is to empower the most radical uh, racialist message that we have ever seen, right? Black Lives Matter, um, critical race theory, uh, trying to embed these ideas in the Department of Education, uh, things like how the Fed, which doesn't really control, judges things, uh, climate, you know, uh, how NASA, there was that Pursue bizarre uh, CIA, there was that, huh? Pursue racial justice and monetary policy. That's the legislative right. initiative. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the CIA trying to, you know, to get people through wokeness and I, I whatever It's not else. just the general though. He won the general by appealing to centrist whites. He won the primary by appealing to centrist African-Americans. Right. By abandoning all the woke nonsense that everybody else to his left was a tra- was in a bidding war over. Right. All of whom, I mean, you can you can make a lot of claims about what this demographic data suggests, but one of the things that I think it definitively proves is that intersectionality as a philosophy is an absolute dead end for anybody who embraces it as a theory of social organization. It posits that racial categories are static and immutable, and they're not. We right. migrate along them over the course of one lifetime. Well, and this is Look. so. This is such an important point because I think no matter how many times I, I was recalling, actually, didn't the Atlantic have a piece right before the election saying if you're against wokeness or worried about wokeness, vote for Biden? Just looking back now, kind of ironic. But the idea that you have to choose a side in a in a you know kind of theoretical race identification project that that we should all be doing constantly with each other goes against everything um, we know about our multiracial future. And I think the multiracial self identification numbers are the most encouraging, both because they they place a burden on Democrats and Republicans. On Democrats, too, as you said, John, they still have to reach white voters who they've been basically neglecting and, and calling, you know, uh, privileged for a long time. But Republicans also have to reach non-white voters, right? If you're going to grow a coalition, if you're a Republican, you have to appeal to people who might not identify as as black or Hispanic, or but say, I'm multiracial and, you know, what do you got for me? And they that is a, that's an important burden on the Republicans as much as the other is on the Democrats. But this idea that no matter how many times you say systemic racism or equity instead of equality, people aren't buying it so far. It's not, it, it's an elite top-down um, uh, jargon that is, that doesn't comport with people's reality, which is a good thing. Right. Now, I'm just going to point this out again. American history shows us that these ideas that ethnic categories or racial categories are immutable and constant and, and never changing is a preposterous notion. Uh, the idea, for example, that Italian Americans and Irish Americans would now be majority Republican would have seemed like science fiction through the 1960s, when I believe the numbers were like close to 80% for both groups. More important the idea that Irish Americans and Italian Americans would marry each other when they hated each other just a hundred years ago, or that Jews would be largely, you know, half of, of, of Jews would be now, uh, you know, basically intermarried and, and, and woven into the rest of non-Jewish society. Uh, or that all those three categories would be considered white at all. That's right. So the, what American history shows us, and of course, history can change. And if we really racialize everything, then everything will change. And yeah, no one will ever change anything. But of course, the great danger there, which Trump showed, 
and which was clear from the 90s with the with the with the balkanization efforts that started with the elites with uh, you know uh, siloing studies right black studies gender studies hispanic studies all of that is that if you create racial consciousness you will create white consciousness now there is this idea that white consciousness is just the sort of default and so therefore we have white supremacy and all of that that is i don't want to get into why that's right or wrong what i mean is that if you racialize everything and the America is 72% white or 71% white and is going to be around that number or it's 69% white when we get to 2030 or something like that and you and everything is racial whites are going to vote as a racial group and you know what happens when a minority group votes as a racial group, a majority? They win everything all all the time, except in places where, where you know, uh, they, they are not the majority, right? Which are American cities for the most part, right? As I said yesterday, New York City is 26% white, 26% black, 26% Hispanic. Um so what what does this tell us? By the way, I just want to point out that New York in 1950 was 31% Jewish. J- just to give you a sense of how these things morph over time. 31% Jewish, New York City, when the city had a population of 8 million. It was the largest contingent of Jews in the world, without question. No longer, um, obviously. But so what what is this? Tell us, like, you know, you are, it's not that you're awakening a sleeping giant. If this is how things are going to sort and you're going to create, uh, you know, sort of uh, critical racial theory, there's going to be counter-critical racial theory just by definition. Like, you can't, you can't say we're doing this, but you're not allowed to do it because it's ours and we own it. And you know what? We're 12% of the population and we're going to impose this on everybody else. Well, like, you know, we haven't even heard from Hispanics and Asians and multiracial people about what effect this is going to have on them either. Well, we have we have we have hints of that, though, right? We have the Latinx, the use of Latinx, I think, being the, the, the most uh, obvious example, the idea that that the elite sort of uh, racial grievance industry expects and assumes that people would identify as Latinx when they're like, what are you talking about? That is not, that's a made up word. I mean, you have that, you have evidence in the Asian American community that this is, that they actually don't, that the the pitting of race against race with, with uh, regard to admissions is not something, that's not a game they want to play, but it's being imposed on them. Again, like they're being told you must be kept out of certain opportunities because of race so that another race can get those opportunities. That's the equity line. And I think it's really, it's just, it's, it's, we're also, I think, going to see more racial dullization on, on, among white people, right? If there's an advantage, a competitive advantage to being multiracial or black, people will adopt that identity. And who's to say you can't, right? Because in, in this world, a lot of it is about identity and politics. And as we many times said, power. So that, hence, Asians are white adjacent when, when they're trying to get into Harvard, but they're victims when they're, you know, the victims of uh, assaults on the street. So it's not consistent. And average Americans of all races understand that the inconsistency and hopefully the harm. Okay. I want to read to you from a column by my, my dear friend and former colleague, Bob McManus, who has written for commentary in the New York Post today, because this is about the topic I talked about the other day, Asian Americans and New York's and the New York City schools. So you got to listen to this because this is where the rubber meets the road. 
he says, uh, the most serious threat to Asian Americans, not to diminish the thuggery, he says, of the street crimes and hate crimes against, you know, these kind of like a, a sneak attacks on Asians on streets. The most serious threat to Asian Americans, New York, uh, Asian American New Yorkers is the Department of Education's ill-disguised effort to eliminate merit test-based admission to the city's eight highly selective School, high schools. The process is dominated by Asian kids. Remember, I told you the other day, 53% of those admitted to the schools are Asian. To the virtual exclusion of Black and Hispanic students, the new numbers came out last week. Whereupon, school's chancellor, newly minted school's chancellor, Maisha Ross Porter, demanded an end to test-based admissions because, quote, it's far past time for our students to be fairly represented, unquote. By her own words, as Bob writes, Porter doesn't consider Asian kids, apparently all 145,000 of them in the New York City schools, to be among our students. And to her, fair representation means quotas. How else to interpret what she said? You're going to tell 145,000 Asian kids and their their 300,000 parents that they are not our students. You're also going to say basically that everybody who is not white are not our students. There are very, very lasting political ramifications and consequences from this naked racism. This is the school's chancellor of New York city who is referring to our students by, by whom she means black people. That's all she means. She doesn't mean, I don't think she means Hispanics doesn't care about Hispanics. She means black people. And it's a terrible thing that black people, black children, have such a horrible time getting into these high schools. And you know why it is? It's because they are being taught nothing in elementary and intermediate schools. They are being oh. taught nothing. They are being warehoused. They are being... They are being written off when they're, when they're, when they're six years old, warehoused and basically kept until they can be released into the you know into the community barely able to read barely able to do math barely having any skills and the problem is what the problem is that there's a test that lets kids into eight high schools there are 150 high schools in New York City why shouldn't they they be able to get a good education there there are hundreds of intermediate schools. Why aren't they getting an education that prepares them for the test that would let them get into those eight well, selective so, high schools? Some are. I mean, the thing is that the, the, the picture that they that the school's chancellor has chosen, the, the story she's chosen to tell because she wants to eliminate the merit test is not the full story either, because a lot of those top African-American students are siphoned off to private schools with full scholarships. Many more choose charters. I mean, it's not just like there's one pool of kids and there's only these top eight schools. There are a lot of other educational options for African-American families whose kids want to excel. They don't have to go to those top schools and many are choosing a private school option or, or whatnot. So it's like, it's she's not even giving everybody the full picture because the racial grievance she wants to uh, highlight won't allow for any sort of nuance or understanding of what the bigger picture is. And, you know, it's 
DC, I mean, I wrote a post for the blog a couple of weeks ago about how they're trying to mitigate the whitening of some of the feeder patterns for some of the better high schools. And it's the same issue. Fix the schools in the communities where the kids are trying to get out and come into other neighborhood schools, because that's actually where the problem starts. Instead, it's easier for top down officials to not deal with that tougher problem and instead say, we've got to stop the white people. It's the, the white people, the problem It's systemic racism. When you push back, the response is you guys have run everything since time began, and now it's our turn. Like we get ours now, and it's a very racially divisive and and um, un, it's just not civically healthy to be in a country where that's the mindset on either side. Right, that's a very important point. So there's a program in New York called Prep for Prep. Fifteen hundred Black and Hispanic kids every year are, uh, you know, go through a process. They get into Prep for Prep, and they go to private schools and boarding schools. Now, 1,500 doesn't sound like a lot, but there are only 4,000 kids that go that are admitted every year to these selective schools. They all, you know, 23,000 kids try to test into them. Uh, you know, Asians made up 53%, Blacks made up 4%, but that's right. Like, there are kids, there are 1,500 Black and Hispanic kids who go through prep for prep that are immediately removed from that pool of kids and they are not counted of course because they are not counted nonetheless the point remains that there there shouldn't even have to be special eight specialized schools which are understood as being the places that new york city's gifted students can get a decent high school education and be prepared to go to college every school should be in theory these were siloed off and siphoned off and made their existence is there because everybody in 1971, when the law passed and a couple of schools have been added to it, understood that what was going on in the cities was the destruction, the wholesale destruction of the best public city school system, city school system in the United States, that it took 10 years to destroy it and that some effort had to be made to keep oases of strength in this sea or this desert of ill education. And with that, I want to talk to you guys about the pain in the back and how to remove it. Because obviously talking about this will give you a pain. And the way to remove that pain is the X chair. I've been telling you about it. If you're not in an X chair, then the one you've got needs to go. X chair secret not only their patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back, but their new XHMT technology, which provides heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk. It goes right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from the X chair a joy, especially with its four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when you're sore. So instead of your old uncomfortable office chair, look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. I, I want to conclude, just to d- dive back into uh, into uh, COVID-iana, 
Um, Noah yesterday sent our, our group chat a piece from Vox, and he was like, this is going to drive you insane. This is going to make your head explode. You're going to be so angry. You're not going to believe it. And the piece is, uh, why, despite the CDC's guidance, everybody should wear a mask everywhere forever? And it's very long. It's like 3,000 words long. Every word uh, is worth and, a read. It's a roller coaster of emotion. Yes. So here's what's interesting. So we're talking about it's like, I can't believe it's, this piece basically is the CDC lifted guidance that said you have to wear a mask everywhere if you're vaccinated. And the CDC is wrong. Experts think this you should wear a mask everywhere even if you're vaccinated. And maybe even especially if you're vaccinated. And here are the 17 reasons why. And, you know, bullet point, uh, this with a chart and a tweet and this and that. It goes on forever. So I'm like, this is weird. Like, okay, so they're they're saying, so it's like the CDC is wrong. And here's like a Twitter doctor here and a parent group there and somebody else. Like, who are they to say the CDC is wrong? I don't even know. Like, I'm happy to hear CDC skepticism. These don't really sound like the right CDC skeptics. The author of the piece is a woman named Catherine Courage. Uh, and I went and looked up her Twitter timeline. So the piece came out, I don't know, a couple days ago, something like that. And on her Twitter timeline, as people will often do, she kind of um, uh, expressed concern about something as a freelance writer, writing for Scientific American and others. Uh, And she said this, classic timing to finally publish a story I've been working on for weeks about public masking, moments before the CDC updated its recommendations on masking updated story to come so she wrote a story about how people still need to mask after they're vaccinated she worked on it for weeks vox scheduled it for publication and wouldn't you know it just before it comes out the cdc says we are now issuing guidance that if you're fully vaccinated you do not have to wear a mask outside does vox then say all right, we got to scout, you know, we, you know, thanks a lot. It was really, but you know, I'm sorry. Things have changed. Peace doesn't make any sense. No, they let her write a new top. The article is now about how the CDC says you should have this. Uh, you shouldn't, you don't have to wear masks outside and they're wrong. And here's why. And then the piece then goes into the piece that she had originally filed. So, Basically, in order to save her stupid freelance assignment, and because Vox understood that publishing something that said you should still mask even when the CDC says you shouldn't might kind of be clickbaity, and it certainly got Noah's attention <laughs> and had Noah send it to us. <clears throat> this is how the media can work sometimes. And this is Vox, which has a, I believe, uh, a market value of around $400 million, according to the last valuation with VCs when it did blah, blah, blah. Abe. But isn't this more honest than what it could have done in that um, it could have said, oh, no, no, we can't run this now because we are our job is to function as a mouthpiece for the CDC. And now that the CDC has changed its guidelines, we're going to we have to get in step with it. No, and here's why. Go ahead. Because the piece concludes rationally. At the at, by the time you reach around the thirty thousand word mark, all these experts start to 
present conclusions that comport with any rational assessment of risk that eh, probably you're going to be okay. And eh, maybe we can't say we have to do this forever because it's going to be counterintuitive, counterproductive. We have to have some sort of a, a something on there that says this is going to end at X date. That's the sort of thing that you could have probably led with, but it would destroy her premise. And she wanted the premise more than, more than the actual article. There's a fantastic piece in the Atlantic this morning that sort of dovetails with these themes. Emma Green wrote it and it, describes and talks to many of the people for whom COVID mitigation strategies are a source of political identity now, that they have little to nothing to do with the science. It is all about projecting the tribe to which you are a member of, and it involves serious psychological self-harm, but it is nevertheless something to which a substantial portion of the progressive voting base is committed with a religious fervor. Uh. It's so great that this became a political matter. Like that's just fantastic. It's really a sign of the health of the country, and it's uh, it's a continuing uh, strength, going from strength to strength. And yes, I'm being ironic. I want to uh, correct a couple of things uh, for the record. Uh, we got a couple of emails uh, last week complaining that I said that fracking didn't exist until 2007. Fracking as a technology was apparently patented sometime in the late 1940s, but there was a technological breakthrough in 2006-2007 around the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania that made made the extraction of natural gas through this method um, cost-effective and possible and and all this. And so uh, I was technically wrong, but I believe I was certainly politically and at least economically uh, correct. and uh, wait, there was another thing that I got wrong. I wanted to correct because uh, other podcasts do this and I, I think that they're right to do it. And I, I don't do it enough uh, to say when we got something off. Um, oh, uh, so Sarah Halimi, uh, the, uh, the horribly murdered uh, uh, woman, uh, French woman who was uh, th- tortured and thrown off her balcony uh, in France, uh, she was born, uh, as I had said, she was she was born in Algeria. I had said I think she was born in Morocco, and I got this wrong. Um, that her parents left, ironically and horribly, her parents left uh, Algeria uh, after anti-Semitic attacks against Jewish stores. So she went to Paris. Her family went to Paris to protect themselves against anti-Semitism in the Maghreb. And she ended up getting murdered by anti-Semites, by an anti-Semitic uh, man shouting Alu Apar in, in Paris uh, 70 years after her, her parents fled to France. So um, I got that wrong, and I'm glad to have that corrected by, uh, by, by listener Deborah Kaufman, uh, because it just adds another element of a horror to the tragedy of Sarah Halimi. So with that, we will uh, return to you tomorrow. For A. Christina Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.